It's 14.58 here in the UK, sun hiding behind the clouds, but just about there on a lovely June day, longest day just had in the, in the year, our summer solstice. And I'm so, so pleased to be here. We're coming up to the hour, so I thought I'd just log us in a minute early. Our topic today, AI in 2030, eight and a half years to go. What do we need? What do we want? What are we concerned about? This is going to be an incredible conversation. Let me whiz around the room first in your own words. Just uh, where, where are you at the moment? Who are you? And a little sentence about uh, how you spend your time or your role. Vibhab, do you want to start? Thanks, Richard. I am an intellectual property rights lawyer, an AI enthusiast, and I am situated in New Delhi, India. I, apart from working at my firm, Anand and Anand, I spend some part of my day thinking on AI issues. Okay, so I'm in the UK. That's continent number one. India, continent number two. Okay, one. <laughs> Which continent are you on? You need to unmute yourself. <laughs> Swan. Here we go. Thanks. Um, Hello. Hello, everyone. Yes, uh, my name is Swan. I'm uh, from the Institute for Security and Safety, Acting Director. And uh, I'm uh, an enthusiast about AI and all the technologies coming with it. I'm very curious about the developments in the next years. Uh, I'm based in Germany, so also Europe. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Yeah. Very, very welcome, Xavi. Great to see you. Great to see you too, Richard. Hi, everyone. Uh, as Richard said, I'm Chavi Chauhan. I also go by CC. Uh, to keep it brief, I'm a nerd, a science nerd. I have been all my life. And it's only in the last couple of years that I got excited or I got uh, um, uh, sort of introduced to artificial intelligence. And I am now a self-proclaimed AI ethicist. And I, uh, my mission is to make healthcare accessible and equitable here in the U.S. From where I'm talking today, uh, specifically from North Carolina. So your continent number three. Excellent <laughs> tick. <laughs> Wonderful, David. Hi, great to be here. I am speaking from. Uh, London suburbs in Surbiton. I grew up in a country some of you may have heard of called Scotland, where I moved to England at the age of 18. I've been involved in foreseeing the future in various ways for more than 30 years when I've been working in the high-tech industry, when naturally we had to foresee what uh, new devices might be possible in the years ahead, which applications people might want to use, whether the internet would ever be useful. We had long arguments about that. You know, we techies thought one day the internet would be useful and the head of marketing was, I think, cautiously skeptical about that. Anyway, so nowadays I write a lot about the future and I chair London Futurists. You're very welcome, David. Odelia, nice to see you there in the chat, and Jean as well. Let's yeah. hear from you. Yes, Jean Ludic. Um, really pleased to be here. So I've been in the AI space probably my whole, my whole career. Did my PhD in AI way back, and then started my first AI company way back um, called Season Systems. I'm currently the the president and founder of the Machine Intelligence Institute of Africa, and also the CEO and founder of Cortex Logic which is a next generation AI company. 
Um, and my massive transformative purpose is really around how to shape a better future in the smart technology era. So I, I recently wrote a book called Democratizing AI to Benefit Everyone. And uh, I'm actually on the book, if you look at the background there, it's actually talking about that mission that I just talked about, shaping a better future in the smart technology era. And I'm excited to be here talking about 2030. That's the future. So it's going to be exciting to, to, to expand a little bit on that. Fantastic. I'm sorry, we compressed your camera, Jacques, so we can't see all of your book titles. But you'll have to move the camera around at some point. No problem. So I am in incredible company. I've got a legal expert here. I've got a security expert, an ethicist, a futurist, and a business leader. Wow, we're going to have plenty to talk about, and we've got 57 minutes to do it. Vipab, let's get started. Let's jump in. This is your third LinkedIn Live. You're our lead panelist today. Welcome, and great to see you. Why is this topic one that we are wanting to explore today? Thank you, Richard, and uh, welcome to everyone. So it's this topic is very important, and a, to, to start off this discussion, because we're thinking about sort of thinking 10, 10 years ahead, I want to bring in two points. One is what is AI and not the way we generally discuss it in terms of what is artificial, what is intelligent, not the philosophical debate, but the fact to set the tone that AI in my view and pardon the pun is a general purpose technology, GPT, which means it will impact every household and it will change the way firms do business. And so when we're looking for AI in 2030, this is one important way of looking at AI and it looks, and for our listeners and everyone out there, it's important like the steam engine or the electric power, or the, or the computer. So it's, it's that kind of technology. That's the first point. The second point, where we are today, and how does it tie to 2030? Where we are today, two points. Let's go, let's go back two steps. Like you said, the first LinkedIn Live that we did wasn't business rational for ethical AI, which means first point, ethical AI. Are we looking at ethics and ethical AI? Will, 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 will we shift towards stakeholders, customers, communities, rather than shareholders? Second, data monetization. Will we be, how will we be monetizing data in the next decade? Third, regulation. We have a lot of soft law, a lot of principles out there. The EU came out with the first EU regulations in like the first draft in April. Will we move towards a regulatory framework in a, what is called hard law in terms of compliance criteria? Fourth, responsible AI. Will, we, will, there be, will that be demystified? And five, in terms of where and how would AI be developed? For example, it's US for innovation, China for application, EU for regulation, or do we have other developing countries? To sort of just sum it up and open up the conversation for these fantastic panelists, just five questions that come from this. In 2030, will there be stakeholder protection and will, ethical, will, and will there be stakeholder protection and ethical AI? Will protection of personal data be a norm? Will AI regulations be there finalized, formalized in terms of compliance, not just limited to EU, limited EU countries, but a global sort of a scenario? Fourth, will there be elements of responsible AI in practice? All the principles that we've heard, will they be in practice? And five, what and where in connecting to the topic, distribution, adoption, the geographical coverage, will it be limited to three countries or three regions or will there be more? Thank you very, very much, Vipab. What a wonderful way to introduce us into this session. 
We'll give a mention for some people who have already tuned in. Edward, so great to see you. Uh, uh, Ashraful as well, great to meet you here. Lavina as well. And Jody from Toronto, you are very, very welcome. Do put your questions in if we can. We will come to them and, and ask them of this incredible panel. Uh, Chavi, let me come to you first. If this world of AI was perfect, then you wouldn't be busy being an AI ethicist would you? So I'm guessing that you feel there's some things that need working on. <laughs> uh, yes, I agree, Richard. And I would take it a point further by saying not just some things, there's a lot of things that we need to work on. Uh, these were excellent questions, Vibhav. And uh, I agree, we've been thinking about these questions for a while, perhaps the last decade. And I foresee us continuing to have this conversation in the next eight and a half years and beyond. Um, definitely, EU has been at the forefront of all the regulations, you know, and US, the rest of the Western world and rest of the world and democracies have been looking up to Europe for setting the stage for these regulations. Things are thankfully happening finally uh, in the US where we have different centers that have been established to put um, regulations, especially when it comes to the healthcare sector. Uh, NIST, if you guys are familiar with, is putting up standards to test bias in AI before things can be, uh, AI-based applications can be rolled out. Uh, the one thing that had been limiting here in the US was the support from the government or from other entities to push for AI ethics, for ethical design of AI, for its sustainable de long-term deployment. And thankfully, there are funds that have been are now being explored by individuals, uh, by people from uh, the application sector, from uh, industry, to get funded to make their uh, AI applications more ethical. So uh, it's going to be a long journey. We are embarking on the journey here in the US with our counterparts in the European Union. I know uh, the applications will be immense coming from China. The regulations have been very different in China in all scenarios, and most of us are aware of it. So we will have to continue that dialogue. It's just unfortunate that socioeconomic disparities exist. And when it comes to technology, they are somehow exacerbated. So in the developing world, there is already limitations to the usage of internet to begin with, which is the basic utility for any AI-based application. So uh, I fear that we may be exacerbating these socioeconomic disparities in the coming future. But if we as a community come together to share resources, I'm very hopeful that we would be able to circumvent uh, some of the obstacles that I foresee in our future. Okay, so you led with a degree of positivity at the end, Xavi. Thank you so much. There's plenty for us to dig into there. Uh, David, let me come to you because we've mentioned the previous decade here a couple of times already. What would a conversation like this sound like if the year was 2011 and we were looking ahead to 2020? Well, I have to admit the many things I predicted in 2011, if I look back at my old slides or my blog posts from the time about what might happen in the decade ahead, did not come to pass in the way that I expected, or at least uh, did not come through in detail. 
uh, I was very excited at the time about the possibility for Google Glass. And I really thought that within a few more years, we would all be benefiting from the technology of augmented reality. And that didn't happen because it turns out the technology is harder than you'd expect. You know, you get a very poor visual experience with uh, uh, the Google Glass at the time. And there were social issues as well, which uh, still remain uns resolved. At the same time, I did not uh, foresee the particular significance of deep learning. You know, uh, this word deep learning wasn't really defined, uh, highlighted until 2012. And uh, neural networks were known about in 2011, but they were viewed as a kind of a weird thing, a niche uh, with a few number of applica applications, but they wouldn't be significant. But what I was right about 2011 uh, look for seeing the future and where I think we can also be confident about predicting the future uh, 10 years out isn't in the detail, it's in the general direction. And the general direction is that technology on the whole is going to become a lot more capable, a lot more powerful. It's going to put more power into many people's hands. And my final prediction is that uh, if we're not careful, we're going to allow more people to do more damage with the technology unwittingly and wittingly, people will be using worse botnet armies than today's. They'll be more powerful. They'll be more sophisticated. They'll be able to dig into each of our inner fears, inner expectations. They'll be able to manipulate us more than they can do already. There is this phrase, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that phrase by Lord Acton has a third clause, which is less well known, which is that great men are nearly always bad men, by which he means that people who start off by being uh, well-intentioned, who start off by doing a lot of good, uh, often end up, if they are given more and more power, to become uh, dangerous. And it's the same with corporations. And we can predict this about the future, that unless we do have mechanisms to control our larger corporations, unless we switch, as in Vipap's words, from a shareholder-led to stakeholder-led, we are very likely to be at the mercy of uh, great corporations that uh, will be able to do what they want. They'll be able to thumb their noses at the governments around the world. And it would be a terrible future, in my view. However, if we have this conversation vigorously now, Xavi uh, said it will be a long journey. I think that's true, but we have to accelerate it. We have to go more quickly into understanding these possibilities. So if we do that, then there is another a broad future available. It's not a world in which we are dominated and victimized by technology that is unruly and ungoverned. It is a world in which we are benefiting enormously, wonderfully, profoundly from what AI can be. And that, I think, uh, we'll come to in later discussions in this hour. Yeah. David, thank you very much. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful listening to a public speaker? <laughs> just, they wrap everything up for you and just deliver it for you to <laughs> comprehend. Jacques, what an incredible thing that David said that in 2011, we weren't talking about deep learning or neural networks, yes. uh, which must be one of the main conversations that your business has and you have as a business leader. And David finished with, again, some positives there. I mean, this is phenomenally powerful, creative technology that offers us great potential. How would you describe that potential? 
Yeah, I, 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 first of all, I want to agree with David. I think the potential is tremendous, but we are sitting on a, a, a in my book, I talk about um, a, a runaway train type of thing scenario. So where, where it's critical to think on our feet and we, we need to make the right choices to almost kind of save our lives and take control of the situation um, if we want to create that better future for humanity. But the potential is enormous. And, and as Shavi talked about healthcare, um, the way I'm looking at this, I think healthcare education can tremendously benefit from this and could be a way to also democratize the benefits of AI in a, in a tremendous huge way. If I think about even Africa, so obviously representing the African continent here, um, we don't want Africa to be left behind, but we do sit with an opportunity here to, to actually leapfrog and use technology if we've got internet infrastructure to actually leapfrog here and provide much better personalized, scalable education. And we talk about this young population here in Africa as well. But if you want to really, I think, do this at scale, it's hugely important. If you think about healthcare, the potential there is tremendous. If, you, if we instrument ourselves, our bodies, as we instrument the world right now, um, I think there's unbelievable opportunities to create more healthy, more, think about wellness as well. Just people that's mentally well, that feel better, about themselves. Uh, what we do with Cortex Logic, we actually into health wellness and financial wellness. And we just launched, we're just busy now launching uh, a derivative app focused on teenagers. We'll be looking at a personalized wellness companion. So that for me is an example of positive applications of, of AI uh, around these kind of things. And then I think in general, it's about efficiency. It's about better, um, so think about uh, making sure that people can be more creative and do things that's more meaningful as opposed to things that's not just that's just repetitive. I think there's great opportunities to fill that gap. Um, but for me in the book, I'm talking about how can we share the benefits? Um, I think it's gonna be super, super important to empower people to use AI as a, G a GPT, but also to share that benefits because not everybody will be able to, to actually use the technology but then we should make sure that we, we actually share that benefit, we democratize in, in a proper way. And, and I've got some very specific suggestions in terms of uh, a proposed uh, massive transformative purpose for humanity and specific solutions, how we can democratize um, AI or smart technology in general. Um, so, so that future, um, it's also sketched out in that massive transformative purpose um, in a more livable habitat as, as a planet. But also, I think, as a civilization, we have to reorganize ourselves in terms of from economic perspective, governance perspective, political perspective, um, and make sure that if we think about human values and, and, and freedom and privacy and all of those kind of things, we still need to adhere to those kind of things. Um, that's why I really love what... what 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 what's happening here with the U? Well, all the different organisations, the partnership on AI, all the different tech companies—they're also saying the right things. But the question is, are we going to implement this? Um, so we need to move to a stakeholder situation, as opposed to a, a shareholder scenario. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that's a short answer. Jacques, thank you so much. We are opening up so many avenues. <laughs> please, please do. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I was thinking, um, thinking 
thinking about AI and the future and what it could be used for, um, I think it will always be like with most inventions, uh, a dual use good. And what we need to make sure of is that it's used for the better and not for the worse. Um, and that the ones using it for the better are the quicker ones to develop it. Um, the problem really is, and what I see is that um, all the regulations we do, for example, the regulations in the European Union at the moment, um, this is a great step and I really appreciate it. I think we're going in the right direction here. Um, but if that prohibits people from developing good AI, um, because it puts big stones in their way, um, people will just develop other types of AI, maybe in China, maybe in some countries where it's not as regulated. Uh, and then it will come back to us anyways. Um, we're all interconnected here. And from the stakeholder shareholder perspective, I would say um, what we could use AI for is exactly that what is for the whole community, what would be good for the whole community. Not exactly so much as enhancing every single person because in all the discussions, everyone is talking about enhancement of, of the human body, of what we can do and what we can achieve. But I think the, the social and economic changes AI brings with it, because there will be changes and we have to face that. Like industrial revolution jobs didn't exist afterwards anymore, which existed before. Um, health, there's been a lot of changes throughout human history. Um, these changes are coming and um, we are now in the single most position that we have the history in our hands. We, we have the history books. We see what happens in social states if changes like this come about and we can be prepared, right? And the thing I see here is that we really need to focus on what makes us human and that we reevaluate um, the values we attach to things. Do we really need to attach that much value to your job, say? Or should we attach more value? Um, talking about healthcare, um, the health of people is so dependent on social interaction. And this yep. is something AI will never be able to provide in a way as a human being does. So maybe next generation jobs won't be that much um maybe we don't need as many doctors anymore or assistants to doctors who have have to do the first screening we can have ai to do the first screening and select which patients need to go first this will be a lot of help right but what we need there will be much more people spending time with each other and doing good for each other um, so we need to prepare that change and we need to think ahead um, because we've seen in history that changes come about very, very quickly once the technology advances. Um, and yeah, I think this is my statement. Be careful, but I'm also looking forward to it because it's, uh, if, if we can save so much time and effort, this is going to be a great future as well. We can spend more time with each other. I completely agree with you, Swan. Uh, John, did you, did you want to go first? Go for it. No, no, no. I, I just wanted to say, please go ahead first. I just want a quick comment. Um, I, absolutely in agreement there. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I agree with both of you. And I believe in AI for good as well, like most of the you know panelists here. And th that is something that we are actually already seeing in the healthcare sector. And I just wanted to emphasize that because now there has been extensive adoption of natural language processing for understanding and classifying the uh, electronic health records and you know getting information out of that so the burden is being shifted from the healthcare providers to these automated processing uh, uh, infrastructures. So it brings the healthcare practitioner closer to the end user, which is the patient in this case. And uh, I'm personally familiar with pathologists who've been working extensively on uh, proposing a regimen for a patient, right? And the health and lifestyle of the patient depends on these regimens that are dictated by the pathologist. But they're under so much administrative burden that uh, there has been a very high burnout rate in pathologists here in the US. But now that we are relying more and more on digital pathology, digital imaging, these technologies are now assisting the pathologist and freeing up their time to bring that patient care closer to the patients who are in need and for the fulfillment and gratification of these professionals who went into that profession with the passion of helping someone. And especially in the COVID-19 scenario, I'm so glad that telemedicine has uh, been in the forefront, you know, patients and practitioners were both, I mean, telemedicine has been around for a while, but everyone was skeptical to use it, but it has been so, uh, it has been embraced, it has been adopted, and I believe it will continue to be used. So uh, the interactions are better when you go in person to see uh, patients. And just from the triaging patients perspective that is already in play, uh, Network Connection built robots in uh, India where they deploy these robots for triaging patients, uh, COVID-19 patients. So all the initial documentation and data were collected and then a healthcare provider saw those patients with more humanity when they were not overburdened in uh, a hot center for COVID-19. So I do... Mm -hmm. No, no, go for it. Sorry. No, I was just saying, I just believe in AI-empowered human supremacy and bringing the humanity closer together as a community, being empowered by AI. Go for it, John. No, no I, I just want to, I'm so aligned with what Swan said and what you also said, and that's what I also talk in the book. I've got actually a chapter talking about the meaning of life, and it sounds, sounds strange to put that into a book talking about democratizing AI, but it's got to be human, we've got to think about human-centric. And, and, and how can we create a, a beneficial future? And, and the, the GPT, if you think about AI, this is just tools. It's just things here that we can use to help create that better future for us. It shouldn't be the other way around. Um, and it's almost like with AI, um, in the past, if you think about your laptop, you need to type in things, you need to use a mouse and all sorts of stuff. In the future, AI and smart technology will allow us to be more natural in our communications as we interact with cars and buildings and, and all sorts of equipment and stuff. So it, is the it gives us the opportunity to, to be more human. Think about what does it mean to be human? And I'm, well, I'm asking that specific question, and it's so interesting to get the different answers uh, around that. But it's very important as we think about framing a massive transformative purpose for humanity that we say, okay, this is what we want. How can we use this to actually achieve that goal? So but anyway, wonderful aligned there. 
Maybe also something to add there <laughs> is uh, sorry, but um, because you talk about um, democratizing information and, yeah. and AI, um, and I think it is crucial. I mean, maybe it's also a question what you understand in a democratizing here, um, yeah. because what is important for me is transparency, really. Um, oh, yeah. And that's something that's a major topic, I think, which makes people afraid of AI and the use of AI. Uh, and me as well. I mean, I include yeah. myself here because yeah. I'm always afraid that people with power, we, we, told, <laughs> we, we talked about this earlier on, will use AI for um, military reasons, for example. And we can't stop that. No regulations in the world will stop that because they will find some black budget somewhere to develop it anyways. Um, but everything which then has power over us, um, be it like everyday traffic, smart cities, whatever, um, I'm willing to give my data if I know exactly what they do with my data and what it's used for. And if there's a specific amount of transparency, I'm not... And only then, if I can rely on a stable political system, then I'm willing to share my data. Um, and I think this, is, this has to be worldwide encountered uh, with transparency from those who have power. And I was wondering whether you meant that was democratization or uh, you have other things in mind there. Yeah, no, that's definitely very much part of that. Um, uh, when I talk about democratizing, I'm thinking about the power as a GPT technology and then sharing the benefits. Not everybody will be able to actually use the technology um, in, 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 in the most beneficial ways. But if other people um, create these fantastic services and solutions, how can we make sure that the benefits also are being shared? Um, so I'm proposing things like, I'm obviously more for a decentralized world. You still need order and governance, but more local, more human future. Um, and I'm proposing um, AI-driven platforms um, that's, that's more kind of human-centric, that's user-controlled, where people are controlling their data and services, where their data and services are being monetized, where they benefit from that. Um, so it's slightly different to where the tech giants are dominating things. So I think it's an opportunity to turn that thing on its head. We, we can create that kind of world um, and multi-sided platforms, proper stakeholder um, scenarios and so forth. So I'm examining all of those kind of things. Um, but for me, it's I think the way we measure things uh, is in GP, I think about, I think it's very important to think about us humans and say, are we maximizing the right thing? Are we maximizing for quality of life, for character building, for sense making? for well-being, for meaningful life? And how can we use the technologies to actually serve that purpose? Um, and I think we need to be smart. We need visionary leadership and execution uh, to do that in the right way. And my final comment on that, um, there's so much to explore here, is I'm, I'm afraid, uh, I think, if you think about um, state um, surveillance and you think about so digital dictatorship, that's very problematic. If you think about transparency in terms of that, Big problem. Think about also capitalist um, surveillance. Well, that's also a problem. How, how is the data being utilized? Um, so I'm absolutely for uh, transparency. And if you think about democratizing, it's 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 about the use and benefits. But it's you got to be you got to have responsible AI. 
You've got to have ethical, um, transparent AI um, around this. You've got to see how is it being used? Am I mistreated here? Um, yeah, so <laughs> I'm sure others have got things to say as well. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Vipab, with you. Right. So no, I just wanted to come back to a point that Swan and Chavi and Jacques were saying uh, was that so the, a way to look at regulation and it could be EU regulations, it could be the soft law, it could be compliance mechanism, AI audits, is to sort of look at it as from the point of clarity. Because I, it sort of connects back to the way we started this conversation about how it's a general purpose technology impacting everyone, which is why I think the trust will remain an important point. And sure, there is always a debate that too much regulation seems to impede, seems to impede innovation, but I don't, I mean, it, it's sort of a balance. So I think that uh, we have to look at regulation and all these aspects from a clarity standpoint, sort of how we achieve that balance between innovation and doing things in a way that uh, it sort of manages in a responsible manner. The second point uh, which I wanted to bring in was that from this conversation, I can realize that when we're thinking of AI at this point of time, or we, uh, we, we seem to be looking at augmenting human ability or improving the quality of time for human beings to focus on things that they would like to do and probably certain administrative administrative tasks could be given to artificial intelligence so is that when we're talking about 2030 is that is that technologically or is that what we are substantially looking at in terms of ai adoption as that's one of the things we're focusing on uh, i think david you would you like to do you have any thoughts and your thoughts on this? Well, that's a, a great question and it's a wonderful discussion. I'm going to have to be disciplined to pick out from so many jewels that others have thrown up which ones to look at. Uh, maybe the most important thing to say is that uh, I fully agree with the question of re-examining our values. What do we really want to get? And that some of the things that have been important in society in the past may become less important in the future. And that might be quite a traumatic experience for some people. Society has operated in, well, in some people have called it the Protestant work ethic or the Calvinist spirit. You know, I'm sure other parts of the world have similar uh, spirits, which is that unless you're working to earn your living, you are somehow a second or a third class citizen. It's all our responsibility to have a job. And if we don't have a job, we are uh, somehow deficient. And that's going to change because quite soon it's going to be harder and harder for people to earn a, a salary, which they expected from uh, taking part in uh, the, the workforce. When that change is going to happen isn't clear, but I think it's quite possible by 2030, there'll be many more people who are at risk of being left behind, feeling themselves to be left behind. It's already a big problem. You know, we talked about COVID. COVID's killing many people. Well, something is killing more people than COVID at certain ages is suicide. There are deaths of despair. Why are there deaths of despair, which is people drinking themselves to death or are giving themselves opioid addictions or even shooting themselves? Why is that happening? In part, people feel that society is leaving them behind. So, I think we have to change, and I think what Vipad was suggesting is exactly right. We should be prioritizing ensuring that this technology which we're creating can provide great quality of life for everybody at essentially near zero costs. You know, uh, it shouldn't cost huge amounts to go to university and get a great education. Much of educational mechanisms should be almost free, uh, either in this kind of system we're having now or other things can be handled in due course by virtual reality as well. Now, there will still be 
a few things which we, we uh, will, will, will be expensive, but we must reduce the costs of all the things necessary for a good life, which means instead of prioritizing and applauding companies for generating huge profits, instead of measuring the GDP and blaming the government and the GDP stops going up, we should be applauding the governments when uh, the costs of all the good things in life, the wonderful accommodation, nutritious food, which by the way, we should be growing a, a, in so, some kind of a labs instead of a, having lots of the earth covered in animals that we're growing in an unproductive and inefficient and a, sadly very painful way. So we should be using technology to provide great food, great uh, accommodation, accommodation, great education, and let's uh, also apply this to healthcare too. So that's the goal in which we should orient society. Now let's pick up the question of democracy. How important is democracy for us? Bearing in mind that, uh, as uh, Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government, apart from all the others which have been tried from time to time. <laughs> Why do we all have some love-hate relationship with democracy? And one thinks, in one sense, we say, of course it's good. But I mean, there's another statement attributed to Churchill, which his uh, descendants say he never uttered such a thing. But this, the statement is that a five-minute discussion with the average voter is a sure thing to turn you against the idea of democracy. Because these average voters uh, sometimes uh, say very ignorant, very horrid, uh, very foolish things. And this is a problem we've got with democracy. When people need to be more informed, people need to be more able to distinguish the fake news from the true news. They need to be more autonomous. They need to be more engaged and more committed. And, well... I think technology and AI can help with all of that too. So my vision for the future isn't today's democracy. It's what I sometimes call super democracy. It's democracy that's turbocharged with the appropriate use of uh, technologies to do things like real-time fact-checking, real-time uh, source-checking, uh, and also proposing new ideas. I mean, uh, uh, really good AI would listen to what we're saying now and then would pop up with a synthesis, you know, say, what do you humans think about this? And it would still be our, our humans' uh, job to decide. We wouldn't hand over the running of the country to the AI. Uh, that would be a, a dangerous move, but we can get advice from AI coming more and more. So my vision is a super democracy alongside a super longevity, a super health, uh, super intelligence, uh, and a super happiness, all of which I think can come out of technology. But we must have this discussion about values. Which values from the past should we now turn down and which should we elevate? Because we can't discuss what restrictions we're going to apply unless we're really sure what are we trying to uphold and what are we trying to uh, constrain. And if we just leave that question at the back of our minds, if we don't have it explicitly, we're bound to be very confused and conflicted. We have to get that explicit and we need to, as Jacques said, clarify what is the massive transformational purpose for humanity. And in my view, it's not going back to an imagined great time in the 1970s or 1990s or 1950s, depending on which shade of politician you have. The massive transformational purpose should be to get to a higher state of uh, flourishing, a higher state of health, a higher state of intelligence, a higher state of wisdom, and a higher state of consciousness than has been possible in the past. This is a transhumanist vision, and not everybody <laughs> likes that term, but I think it is the right philosophy for the 2020s and beyond. Well, David, <laughs> take a breath. <laughs> I know, great points, David, and I just wanted to expand a little bit upon, uh, you know, what you mentioned about the suicide rates going high and people in the community feeling left behind. 
And as we think about these regulations, that is something I would want all the attendees to keep in mind. As a community, we need to make sure that everybody in the community is represented when we're thinking about any AI-based applications. Uh, just to add a little bit perspective, you know, I'm an immigrant who moved to the USA. I am a minority, I'm a woman. I'm a woman of color, I'm Asian. I'm someone working, a working mother. So, I mean, you just start counting the strikes against me, you know? And when we talk about the data sets, uh, they're in no way comprehensive. They don't even begin to start capturing these intersectionalities that affect me as an individual in so many ways. So the basic need for us to make AI uh, ethical by design is to make it inclusive, try to capture these intersectionality and just make ensure that when any AI-based application is applied to masses, it relays, you know, it is amplified, it maintains all the parameters that I was trained to maintain, you know, and it's sustainable upon its deployment. So it's critical that everybody in the community is represented in the data sets. The data sets are diverse and inclusive for us to be building responsible AI. And you did mention about the democracy and uh, the democracy that you are picturing, you know, wouldn't that be great? And I do want to say a comment that I saw from Richard, David Wood for prime minister. Uh, I couldn't vote, but I would support that. <laughs> but, <laughs> I get the feeling David doesn't want to be prime minister, though, actually. He's inclined <laughs> to feel the wrong, <laughs> with the challenges with that. Um, so well, I just well, want to get a quick word from, from you, if I may. Um, there's... There's an area around alignment that we're, we're talking about here. There's an alignment in terms of the regions. We've got four continents on this call and uh, you know, everyone's doing slightly different things. And then I see Michael Kane, and great to see you, Michael. You're always welcome. Uh, Tara as well, hello to you. So Michael's asking about this balance a little bit, if I paraphrase the question. And what do you, I mean, as, as David and I, and, and you're in the EU, we seem to be trying to be on the front foot for legislation and thinking about safety and privacy and ethical focus and security, of course. Uh, what are, are we missing out compared to maybe India, China, the US, who maybe promote traditional innovation a bit more? What are the pros and cons of these approaches? Should I take that one? It's an open question. I, I tend open to swan if, if she wants to pass <laughs> the bat on and take a second, that's fine. <laughs> No, no, I, I mean, uh, I mean, because I think uh, no, that's a good point, Richard. I think we we uh, from a, from a developing country perspective, I think you have to look at both simultaneously. Uh, the conversation would be about building AI models, creating awareness about what AI is, and sort of AI adoption, and then sort of simultaneously being aware and cognizant of the fact that there is conversation on regulation. So, so you sort of move on those both. They're like two cars driving on the same road, sort of a situation. And and to sort of answer that specifically for the Indian context in in, in the context of our conversation, um, India actually did. So India has been thinking a lot in AI in that sense. We had a strategy report from the government in 2018, two reports in 2018, and then we've had a responsible AI report in uh, 2021. 
part one and part two is so the part one sort of lays out principles which is like, like the first car on the road which is about ai and sort of training ai models to get ai products out of to sort of develop ai in india so those responsible ai principles help they 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 just like 31 minute they they their principles for design deployment of ai they're focusing on narrow ai they, they specifically mention that the future is determined by all uh, you know all stakeholders they actually use the word stakeholders there and they talk about you know diverse groups like researchers private organizations government standard setting bodies regulations and citizens and then they sort of the report then sort of goes mm -hmm. into the indian report goes into uh, seven principles and i could just sort of run you through them in like 30 seconds is like principle of safety and reliability if you're deploying them reliably do you have sufficient safeguards to protect people? Do you have, do you treat everyone equally? Is there inclusivity, the principle of inclusivity and non-discrimination? Principle of privacy, which sort of connects back to data protection, security to prevent adversarial attacks. I mean, that's to sort of our non-technical audience. That basically means that you've trained a particular AI on a particular set of data. You sort of introduce something in the system and sort of the model starts getting its patterns wrong. It's a little trick that you do there. Then you have transparency. You have accountability, which will go back to the legal principles of re responsibility. Who's going to be responsible? Who's going to be accountable? Do they have audits, which sort of connects to EU regulation? Then you have uh, whether stakeholders should conduct risk management. So just to sort of come back to the point and then giving back to my co-panelists is that when you're looking at from other regions, I think the conversation will always have to be on both paths. We will be laying down a framework. And I think in, from the Indian context, we have to we have reports. The second one's due. This is the principles. There'll be certain principles that will be coming into practice. That'll be talking about practice. And that report will be out soon, hopefully. And so we'll we'll talk about AI adoption and then we'll talk about regulation. So they'll they'll sort of go simultaneously. And that obviously relies on then the basic technical skill that's present in the nation. So I don't think any conversation in any region is irrelevant i think anyone that is sort of catching up or is sort of becoming part of this collaborative journey sort of seeks benefit from what is out there and sort of make their own unique path from it yeah uh, richard I, I just want to comment on i, I fully agree with uh, vipav there um i think one needs to look at the balance in a balanced way at this but i'm also thinking more with the internet and with smart technology, we've created this nervous system for humanity. We, we are getting closer um, and, and can more, more connected. I know there's still Asia or China doing their own thing. There's different philosophies and so forth. But we, if you look at the big, big picture, if you zoom out, um, we, we've created this nervous system. And if you think about the problems that we face as humanity in terms of climate change, or you think about lethal autonomous weapons, or think, think about pandemics, um, synthetic biology, all sorts of different things. Um, we need to work together uh, in, a bi in, a more, in a smarter way, in a, in a, 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 with a lot more wisdom. Um, and, and, and I think, so we gotta be careful about just nation states and just regional ways of thinking. Um, I know we are sitting in a transitionary period, so this is what we have right now, nation states. But in the future, we might have city states, and that's all connected like the internet. And and it's and it's and I would love to see a future that's more local, more human, where you've got more influence about what's happening around you, um, and and there's freedom and everything. But there's still governance. We've got to have a balance between centralized and decentralized as well. Um, I, I think Europe is for me wonderful that 
Europe took the lead in terms of regulation, in terms of data privacy, GDPR, and so forth. Here in South Africa, we, 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 we've adopted, we've got a Poppy Act that comes into play the 1st of July. That's pretty much based on GDPR, um, uh, more or less. There's maybe here and there nuances. But um, so that's wonderful, and we can all benefit and, and, and learn from one another. But but I think so. I, I think Europe should obviously look at innovation as well. But we should try and work together and think more global about things. Um, and and uh, so that's why I'm talking about a massive transformative purpose of humanity. Think about where we're going. Um, and, and yeah. So and, and and just one final comment in terms of what David said. Uh, you talked about super super democracy and so forth um I, I actually in my proposal i, I do talk about uh, one of the things is, is systems and i'm saying um we can get to that massive transformative purpose by driving beneficial outcomes for all life through decentralized adaptive and agile economic social and governance systems that reward active participation and positive contributions to society and civilization so we've got to have that component in there and that's, if you think about the future of work and all of those kind of things, we can just re, almost like re reconfigure that. Just think about, it, reward anything that's making positive contributions to society and civilization. But then we have to agree what is that positive contributions. And then final part of that is we obviously want to make sure that these governance systems and social economic systems, we, we still keep peace and protect humanity from any potential harm in elastic ways we got to be super elastic um we, we, that's why I'm, I'm also concerned about the current government systems that's not elastic enough it, will, it needs to be if you think about business you need to be agile you need to move quickly and and a lot of these new businesses and AI driven platforms are super agile and elastic and if we want to survive and, and thrive as a humanity i think it's going to be super important to be to, to also have that um, and then the final aspect of this is respect for individual freedom and privacy. We've got to have that. So that's why I'm really concerned about digital dictatorship. Um, we've got to steer away from that. It's got to be a balance. More local, more human um, future. That's what, I, what I'm hoping for. Challenge every one of you here with a question here. Because I think all of us, as we're sitting here together, we have a very same mindset about when we talk about the society, the community, um, the world we envision, everything we, we, uh, we dream of, um, what we have as core values and um, not leaving behind like any human being. Um, but uh, in preparation of uh, this meeting today, um, I asked my friends, um, do you have any comments or challenging ideas I should ask here in the round. And one thing was, yeah, what's about different societies and cultures? So we have been talking about the, the feeding process of the data feeding into AI, but what about the goals? Would it be the same for everyone? Would it be the same for every society? Because there's not just this one big society around the world, but there are many, many, many societies. And um, the, the question is, could we, um, or is it even arrogant to say that we have the solution which would make things better for everyone? Or should we be aware of many cultural differences and aspects 
and cultural ideas on how they want their community and society being shaped and how they could use AI for that? Or will those who develop the AI, AI finally be the ones dictating, not democratizing, but dictating how future communities look like? Oh, so on. The fantastic, great question. And that's why I'm more for a decentralized, adaptive, agile, local, more local, more human future, so that we can respect that cultures and that people in certain areas and regions can operate in a proper way. And I, I'm envisioning a future where everybody's got an AI assistant, an agent, um, and, and even towns, city to cities, got all sorts of communities that actually look after them, that bat for them, um, and then that, and also respect their cultures, their, their way of life. We should have that. So we, I'm, I'm very concerned about anything that's being enforced on, on people from nation states, from a global community. We, we have, that's why we need to have a decentralized type of world that respect communities, um, that respect city states and so forth. But there needs to be a, a common thread there in terms of what is wisdom, what is good values, what is ethics, because we still have these nodes these city-states and smart towns and smart cities connecting and interacting with one another. Um, and, and we want to make sure all parts are healthy. It's like a human body. We don't want parts. We don't want our leg to be unhealthy. So if, if the leg represents Africa or countries there, it's not good for the humanity. So how can we make sure that we've got a healthy scenario and setup? But there's got to be a respect for individual towns, communities, peoples uh, as well. I'm very much for that. That's why I'm talking about individual freedom and privacy. Uh, we've got to steer towards that world. <laughs> so can I pick that up perhaps? Because I completely agree. Yeah. One of the highest goals we have should be to support diversity, support variety, support liberty. You know, it is uh, wonderful that people can explore different lifestyles, different philosophies, different ways of augmenting themselves, different ways of coordinating together. And uh, ideally, we will have much more variety in the future than we have now. But that doesn't mean to say that we uh, are happy with every single way in which people may choose to organize themselves. We can look at various groups. And although we can say there's lots of good ways, there are some ways that are very definitely better than others. It's like there are diets, you know, there are many good diets, but some of them are definitely worse than, than, than others. And so yeah. in Britain, you know, we used to send little boys up chimneys uh, naked, you know, this was part of their culture and it was good for them because it gave some money to their uh, family until the poor boy died of uh, cancer or whatever from uh, having. So we said that's not good enough. There are parts of the world in which uh, women are not allowed to be educated, you know, I think, again, we can say that is not a tolerable culture. And so there are some things which we would not accept. But on the whole, it's about enabling choice. And yeah. despite our variety, there should still be some agreements. I mean, the, the world's uh, nations gather to play football. And they can have different uh, styles. You know, you can organize 5-3, 5-2, or 4-2-4, or whatever. But there are certain rules. You can't have two goalkeepers. You can't have 16 players on the pitch. And there are other games, of course, you can play. But again, each game has got rules. And at the Olympics, there are yet more rules, which is how the different games coexide. So there does need to be some coordination. And in particular, there needs to be coordination against the things that could destroy all of us. So maybe if I could just briefly go back in time to not 2011 this time, I want to go back to the mid-1980s. In the mid-1980s, I was uh, doing my postgraduate studies, and we in, 
England, much as uh, the rest of Europe, were horrified at the prospects of the future. There were more intermediate range nuclear missiles had been placed there, both by the American President Ronald Reagan and by the whole string of uh, Soviet leaders. It looked as if the world was uh, facing up to a, a horrific outcome in which war might be possible. And very few people foresaw that by uh, 1990, 1991, the Berlin Wall was going to come down and many of the uh, Warsaw Pact countries would discover a kind of democracy, a kind of market reform. What brought that about? Well, it's a long, long story and I don't want to oversimplify it, but at one level, what brought it about was a shared vision of a bad outcome, which was that if there is a nuclear war, it wouldn't just be heat and radiation, there would be something called a nuclear winter, which uh, various scientists and the futurists called Carl Sagan uh, did some work on. And Carl Sagan is well known as a science presenter of the uh, very renowned show Cosmos. But in his past, he did atmospheric research on the atmosphere in Venus and Mars. And with other people, they figured out that if there was even a limited exchange of large nuclear weapons, it would plunge the Earth into something more terrible called a nuclear winter. And people on both sides of that uh, Cold War, people in Reagan's circle and people in Gorbachev's circle said, hang on, could this really be true? And both of them then had a change of mind. Even though Ronald Reagan for 20 years earlier had been spitting blood about the Soviet Union, you go back to the speeches he made in 1960-61 about how terrible Marxist-Leninism was, uh, and Mikhail Gorbachev had inherited 70 years of opposition to the capitalist imperialist West, but somehow the two of them managed to change things around, and it was because of a shared vision of a terrible future that might come. So I think there are terrible things that could happen with misused AI. If we have a race to the bottom, we will end up in a situation that could be just as bad as nuclear winter, in which there is all this dust in the atmosphere, which destroys the ability of plants to get sunlight and could kill the whole of humanity. Because that was so terrible, people changed their views. Now, we still have nuclear weapons, alas, but we have many fewer than before. The intermediate-range nuclear missiles were withdrawn from from Europe, uh, the reduction in the long-range missiles too, and Reagan's divisive Star Wars program was cancelled partly by him and partly by George Bush, who came afterwards. So let's clarify the real most terrible risks. This isn't just individual risk. It is a risk of a world completely dominated by, it could be 1984, it could be Big Brother, it could be Brave New World, but and modern versions of them, and people from all groups. Even if the Chinese Communist Party, even if Vladimir Putin's uh, governance of Russia and the people in other parts of the world, even if they have different political styles, and that diversity is something on the whole we should accept and, and embrace and cherish, there are something in common that we need to face up to. So let's clarify what could go very badly wrong and what could go very badly wonderfully right. And that will, I think, uh, take us away from the tr present trajectory, which is not uh, not particularly encouraging unless we have this discussion and unless we have people in all uh, groups around the world uh, beside all the power groups saying, you know what, we've got to stop this rush to a race to the bottom. We've got to find the ways to agree a core principle. And we've got to watch each other, just as there were people watching yeah. to ensure that nuclear weapons were withdrawn. And people today can still visit each other's countries without uh, warning and inspect the potential sites of chemical weapons. This is a wonderful thing that humanity has done. We've got this ability yes. of unscheduled verification. Well, we need the same unscheduled verification of what companies and countries are actually doing with their AI systems. Let's get that agreed because it's in our common interests.
Fantastic. <laughs> Couldn't have said that better. But also, um, this is just a minor comment there, and then I give the word to Richard, who wants to close the session. I'm I'm seeing this in his face. <laughs> um, I think it takes leaders here, all of us, everyone who's listening, spread the word, and really um, make people in power aware of the risks and um, all make them contribute and spreading the word for a better AI future. Absolutely. It is 15.57. I told you the hour would go quickly. <laughs> I mentioned that as well. Uh, Vibab, last word with you for one minute. Have we covered the kind of ground that you wanted us to in this? I think we, yeah, we, we've covered some very interesting points. I'll just quickly focus on share stakeholders, re-examining human values, about how regulation and innovation has to be balanced, about how AI has to be augmenting and improving quality of life, how it has to be human-centric. So we, we, we've explored enough to be able to understand the broad direction in which we have to go. And I think I'd like to make the final point, which is the most important one, which David just brought in, is knowing what could go wrong and what could go right, and not to look at it as a race and sort of be in a more collaborative way. If that's one key thing that we have to take away from this conversation, it's that last point. Because right now, we seem to be heading and what we seem to be reading is the exact opposite of that. And if you're looking at human-centric, and then if it's a general purpose technology in that sense that we mentioned, we have to sort of look at it in a more holistic way. Global development, local application. Know your data, know your context, train it that way. That's it. Fully agree. I, I think we've entered a dangerous, dangerous world where things are moving faster than we think. And I think as humans, we see time linear but we're sitting on multiple exponential curves with smart technology. And it was interesting to look at David's projection 2011 to 2020. And we're obviously trying to extrapolate in certain data points there. But what makes this very interesting is not just AI. We're talking about, say, blockchain as a disruptive decentralization force, blockchain technology. But there's nanotech, biotech, uh, all these kind of things. And they interplay. And uh, we're going to be surprised by 2030 and 2040. Um, so, and, and, and I think uh, there's a guy called Daniel Smachtenberger, he talks about the catastrophic risks um, and he's arguing, and I'm also doing that in the book, that our current civilization is on a problematic trajectory. We struggle with a bunch of things. We struggle with sense-making, meaning-making, wealth gap, gaps, job loss, all these kind of things. Um, and uh, we need to steer this in the right direction. So, agree with Swan? We. <laughs> We, we need to collaborate, we need to talk, we need to help influence, we need to do a little bit to make a difference, wherever we are. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Well, I was so glad to hear you speak just there, but I was slightly worried you're going to ask another mind-expanding question with 30 <laughs> seconds left, but you, you took us home, so that was wonderful. Um, Jacques, thank you for those comments we have for the summary. My main takeaway today, and I think Xavi really made this point as well, is that this innovation needs to have a wider remit to it, a wider forethought to it. Innovation is not just your roadmap of your products, right? Innovation is not just how curved you can make the TV screen, right? It, it's everything. It's happiness. It's the whole um, society that begins, of course, with so many employees. So, Vibhab, thank you. Swan, thank you. Shabi, thank you. David, thank you. 
Uh, and good to see a couple of plugs there. So we've got authors on this call. Go and check out their books, check out their work, follow them on LinkedIn, uh, Jacques as well very much and everybody who's commented and joined i see that carolina was here nick was here i've mentioned jerry and some others already thank you so much for keeping us company uh, an incredible hour and if you like this kind of stuff then message me or viphab and we'll patch you more into this kind of work uh, we certainly share many of the views on this call if not most of them and we're back we're back in an hour for the inclusive ai forum we've got a keynote that david's very kindly pre-recorded for us so we'll save his voice later on uh, and then three incredible speakers and we're just getting warmed up today. So stay with us. Messages if you need any more details. Everybody, thank you so very much again. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. So thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much.